Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Cotter, and I'm joined, as ever, by my inimitable host, David Robertson. And I'm now worried about what inimitable means. It means that you can't be imitated. It's impossible to imitate you, both in your style, your voice, and indeed your scholarly approach. Yeah, that could be taken either way. Um, I was worried for a second it meant I didn't have a name. I was unnameable. Well, we we can do that. We can start recording again, if you like. But... um, we shan't. Um, we're brought to you, as ever, by the BASR, NAASR, and IAHR, and this week we've got David speaking with Bruce Sullivan about yoga in museums. So before you get talking again, unnamed one, let's take it away, David. Yoga, in its modern form, should be of great interest to us as scholars of religion. Whilst it certainly has roots in Vedic culture, the vast majority of Western practitioners today do not see it as a religious practice per se, but rather to do with health or, more vaguely, well-being. The issue of yoga's status as religious has actually been to court in California, and nevertheless it continues to be practiced in businesses, in schools and in museums. And to discuss the latter issue, I'm joined today by Bruce Sullivan, who is Professor of Religious Studies at Northern Arizona University, a specialist in Hinduism, Buddhism and classical Sanskrit culture. He has published widely on these subjects, including the Historical Dictionary of Hinduism. More recently, he has been looking at the intersections with popular culture, including the recent edited volume, Sacred Objects in Secular Spaces, published by Bloomsbury in 2015. So I would like to start by asking how you started looking at these kind of popular uh, issues and particularly yoga in museums. Well, anyone who studies Hinduism has to be interested in yoga. It's a really vital component of the religious tradition and um, it merits close attention in teaching about Hinduism and understanding Hinduism, ancient or modern. And so it's not a surprise that any scholar of Hinduism would know something about and care to teach something about yoga. And in my case, um, my interest in yoga goes back to uh, my doctoral studies. Uh, I spent a year in Pune, which is headquarters for Iyengar's Yoga uh, Institute uh, and his starting point in his teaching of yoga. And uh, I went there to his institute a number of times, uh, had the great good fortune to be instructed, by which I mean yelled at by him personally. And so it was, uh, for me, always... uh, an interest, and I'm surprised myself to have it come back in the form it has, namely uh, having discovered yoga being practiced in museums. So that is a surprise. And I was surprised when uh, when I saw you talking about yoga in museums. Tell us a little bit more about that. We're, we're not talking about yoga being, dis- you know, yoga-related items being displayed. We're talking about people practicing yoga in museums. Indeed. Uh, this was a discovery I made in the process of interviewing 
curators of Asian collections in various museums in North America and in Britain. Uh, I had the idea that I wanted to discuss with curators how they went about exhibiting materials that would represent Asian religions and talk to them about their practices, their understanding of the religions themselves, how they went about representing the religion through objects and so forth. And while doing that, all of which was very interesting, I made the surprising discovery that in museum after museum, yoga was being practiced as part of their outreach efforts to bring people into the museum. And so I began to speak also with museum officers responsible for programming. And I began to ask them why they were doing this. And I kept hearing from them interesting accounts of what led them individually to yoga and how they saw yoga as being, in some sense, comparable to art appreciation. That in both cases, we have an instance of a contemplative approach that merited uh, being regarded as similar. And this surprised me uh, for a number of reasons that I think we ought to touch on. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> and we will, hopefully. Um, how, I mean, how widespread is this? Um, it's surprisingly widespread in North America, I think less so in Britain, uh, I haven't found it much at all elsewhere in Europe, but in North America, both Canada and the United States, it's surprisingly widespread, and this has nothing to do with the nature of the collection in the museum. And so it's not dependent on the museum having a collection of Asian objects. I find uh, active programs of uh, yoga ongoing, in museums with no Asian collection whatsoever, and this includes museums as diverse as uh, the James Madison Museum in Virginia, uh, which is dedicated to one of the early presidents of the United States. It's uh, historical museums, such as one finds in El Paso, Texas, uh, with no Asian collection. It's the Cotton Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. There's no Asian collection there, clearly. That's uh, fascinating. So it's not it's not coming from an engagement with, uh, you know, with with Vedic culture or you know, um, classical Hindu religion or anything like that. Not in every case, and in many cases, indeed, it isn't. Uh, Clearly, when the Salvador Dali Museum in Florida sponsors yoga classes, which they do regularly, it doesn't have anything to do with Asia. It has to do with bringing people into the museum and having them experience something positive that they like in the museum context. What then do the different parties get out of this? Um, You've already touched upon the idea that the museums, it's to do with outreach. But what do the yoga... Who's pushing it from the yoga point of view? Is, this, is it coming 
is it a centralized organizational thing um or is it is it more ad hoc what are they what are they getting out of it it seems very much uh individual museum programming officers deciding to contact a local teacher some local studio a teacher is sent classes are started sometimes different studios get periods of time in which they hold these classes and then they switch to different studio and so it it varies widely but the types of yoga that one encounters in the museums are exactly the types of yoga that one encounters in yoga studios and these are varieties of yoga that in many cases directly trace back to very well-known teachers and traditions of the 20th and 21st centuries and so whatever one finds being taught in yoga studios nowadays one finds being taught in museums as well which leads perfectly on to the question of what <laughs> what are the, what is being taught in yoga studios nowadays i mean yoga as a modern phenomenon i mean it it's quite something isn't it i mean even the last 20 years in particular you know it, we've seen a, a, a huge explosion of this uh, many yoga teachers nowadays are very well aware of the tradition as an ancient tradition and in fact often cite the importance of this uh, often they magnify the extent to which the tradition is unchanged since ancient times and indeed it's changed rapidly and frequently indeed yoga as a term has been used for so many different kinds of things that it's difficult to characterize briefly uh, but it's used typically to refer to the kinds of practices of uh, posture breathing and sometimes meditation that uh, are usually what people think of when the word is cited but it's also uh, in more recent times expanded to include much more acrobatic forms sometimes with a partner so people doing acrobatic postures with a partner acro yoga as it's often called is not unknown in studios and in museums uh the inclusion of music in the practice also uh is not unknown in studios and in museums uh, this can include even uh, the yoga rave phenomenon which is uh sometimes uh a party lasting multiple hours with electronic music and uh special lighting and so forth that um also shows up in museums and i was fascinated when you earlier on you said about uh that yoga and art are both the thing that unites them is this contemplative aspect um I think that's very interesting if if this if the reason for doing yoga in a museum is not because of the idea of uh being close to you know asian artifacts or some sort of vedic kind of um 
heritage, but it has to do with this contemplation. What does this tell us about how the sacred is being uh, invoked here? Uh, that's an interesting question. And uh, traditional yoga, of course, is not about art appreciation. And a traditional yoga uh, practiced out in the wilderness by individuals didn't involve art. It didn't involve having before the practitioner uh, any kind of painting, statue, or other artistic representation. And it's surprising, therefore, to see repeatedly how programming officers will cite this correspondence between art appreciation and yoga practice as both being contemplative in their justification for why it should be done in a museum. So if we look back at traditional sources about yoga, whether the Bhagavad Gita or Upanishads, it's quite clear that they are presenting yoga as a means by which one disengages from external stimuli. And one turns inward, one turns one's focus inward, away from external Stimulation. So, for example, in building up one's ability to concentrate, one may initially focus on uh, a mandala, which is a, a meditation diagram. But the objective here is not to have it outside oneself and focus on it as an external object. The technique is to memorize it and then bring it up uh, in one's memory as something one visualizes. And so it's not art appreciation in the way museum staff are speaking of art appreciation, clearly. So that's a very different type of contemplation than standing in front of an object in an art museum and then reading its description and moving to another and so forth. So I see these as rather different kinds of things, and so it's well worth critiquing what the museum programming officers say about the similarity between yoga practice and art appreciation as contemplative. And it occurs to me as well, I was thinking about um, when I was in the Louvre, um, uh, looking at some uh, sort of medieval... uh, Christian paintings and again their function was not contemplative they weren't designed as contemplative objects they were they were functional they were things within a church that um, possibly told specific messages or, or you know addressed specific symbolism but they weren't about uh, you know finding deeper meaning within yourself by um, by gazing at them for hours in our you know Possibly the you know a glass of wine in hand and considering higher things, um, and I wonder what does this tell us about the way that in in you know the case of art and the case of yoga about how museums really construct um, a particular uh, a way of seeing perhaps but also you know they construct the importance of things for us as as Western consumers. Certainly, museums are commercial enterprises. They're keen to have people come in 
And even if the museum itself is free, uh, as many museums in Britain are, uh, that doesn't mean they're not counting the number of people admitted because they need to present that data for next year's funding. They're keen to bring people in, have them go to the shop, go to the cafe, and so forth. So these are certainly commercial enterprises that are keen to have a lot of people coming in. And this is one of the attractions of yoga in the museum is that it brings in people who otherwise might not come. And so while many of the program officers will say that people come, do yoga, and then go through the collection and view the objects and so forth, uh, it's keen... It's a keen interest of theirs to have people in the museum having that positive experience because they cite frequently statistics that something like half the population is afraid of museums, regard them as alien spaces that they are unfamiliar with and may not wish to become familiar with, and anything that the program officers can do to bring people in and give them that positive experience so that they'll come back uh, they want to be doing. So certainly part of it is uh, an interest in getting people through the door. But your question about how museums construct that experience uh, is an important one, and they put a lot of thought into how an exhibition is structured, how people will flow through it from a starting point to an ending point, how much information to put on the wall about the objects. And so it's something about which they, they very carefully uh, consider many variables. And uh, they give a great deal of attention to lighting, and to uh, the views people will have of objects. And in the case of sacred objects, or formerly sacred objects, now in museums, uh, this is profoundly different from the setting in which they originally were placed. And so in a temple uh, or in a monastery, a statue, for example, uh, would be placed in such a way that typically one does not walk all the way around it. Typically it's not well lit so that one sees every bit of it. Uh, frequently, in fact, uh, the object is dressed, so it may have a robe on it, it may have garlands of flowers on it. And aside from all that, uh, if one goes into a temple, Hindu or Buddhist, it's often difficult to see the object very well because of incense smoke, because of the press of other people, and so forth. And so uh, the way one sees the object is profoundly different in a museum than it would be in its original setting. And there are examples, for instance, um, in Hinduism, possibly Buddhism <clears throat> as well, where I mean, you have these rites in Hinduism where they the deity is renewed every every few years. Um, uh, 
uh, Jagannath, for instance, is a, springs to mind. So you can have a statue in a museum that we're, you know, we go in and we regard it as this timeless thing. This is a, a statue of the god, and they've just replaced it. <laughs> you know, in its original context, it was only meant to last ten years or something like that. They just replace it and move on. Um, and we're almost by, but you know, these kind of things, we're we're creating, we're creating the sacred in our own image. If you know what I mean, we're we're creating a, a form of devotion that suits our. Uh, very Western Christian, implicitly Christian kind of ideas of how we are to treat devotional objects or acts, if you like. Um, I want. I wondered about this ideas of kind of energy and things. Um, you mentioned this before, um, not today, but previously, about how. Um, when Westerners talk about yoga, they often talk about, um, you know, self-fulfillment um, and ideas of, of there being particular energy in the room and yoga being something about producing, kind of producing energies. And um, it reminded me very much of kind of new age, uh, you know, to use the term uh, broadly, um, kind of ideas about energy and and place and self-fulfillment. Um to which degree are we actually talking about something that comes from the Vedas here? And to which degree are we talking about something which is actually much more recent, um, which has found a language to use from the Vedas? Um, if we look at a text like the Yoga Sutra Patanjali, we don't find their discussion of energy in the context of yoga. It's certainly very strongly present as rhetoric in other later texts. Uh, Pata Yoga traditions speak much more frequently of cultivating uh, energy and moving it within the body and so on. Uh, Tantric traditions such as uh, Kundalini Yoga emphasize this frequently. So within the yoga tradition as a whole, there's certainly plenty of uh, textual and uh, traditional support for ideas of energy and moving energy within the body and so on. One need not uh, attribute that exclusively to New Age, uh, more recently developed traditions. And certainly... If we look at modern postural yoga as taught in the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, it draws upon all these traditions of Hatha Yoga with its emphasis on many different postures and using the body, strengthening the body so that one can actually effectively engage in yoga practice. Um, So the tradition taken as a whole, has plenty of discourse about energy and about well-being and health and so on that uh, the modern version of yoga picks up on. So it's not alien to the tradition by any means. But I guess what I was uh, wondering about is how much is this uh, an amplification of concerns that were already amongst the baby boomer generation? Um, And... I don't know, but I'm suspecting that the uh, 
that generation is is a major subscriber to museums, right? Both their local museum and when they when when they travel. Um, are we are we seeing a sort of uh, a healing ritual of this of the baby boomer generation, if you like? I think so. I think uh, yoga, as currently constituted um, in yoga studios worldwide, but particularly in the Western world, could be looked on as a, a healing ritual. There's so much attention given to well-being, and uh, if we look at a source such as uh, Iyengar's book, Light on Yoga, we see that on virtually every page he is advocating particular postures to heal particular chronic conditions and even potentially fatal medical conditions. And indeed, in the back of that book, there's... uh, pages devoted to, I believe it's 88 specific chronic and other medical conditions that yoga postures taken in series, he specifies which ones, can actually treat. And so going back then to that source as one of the major landmarks of modern yoga tradition as currently constituted, we see the emphasis on health and well-being very strong in that source. As a final thought then, um, what would you suggest that this, uh, this practice of yoga in museums, this idea of the construction of the sacred, this uh, mixture of very ancient traditions with a, with a much more recent cultural context. What, what does this tell us about uh, the role and presence and uh, function of, of religion in, modern, in the modern world? Certainly we should never be surprised when we see religion manifesting itself in any context and uh, museums are no exception. Museums have cultivated the notion that they are something like sacred space of a sort. And uh, they do this in a variety of ways. One interesting way in regard to these objects is that they don't tell us, in most cases, uh, the history of the object in question. So you stand before an image of the Buddha or of a Hindu deity, and the plaque next to it does not inform you how the museum came into possession of it, whether it was deconsecrated at some point, whether it ceased to be sacred, or whether it should be viewed by those standing in front of it as a sacred object that just happens to be in this museum. And so the nature of the object's sacredness is perhaps deliberately ambiguous, and the museum has perhaps created a situation in which it could be understood as sacred by those who would like to see it as such. In any case, uh, the objects certainly represent the religious traditions in which they had a role initially and which currently they're no longer playing. And so uh, as Richard Davis would have it, these these objects have lives. And 
it's a very interesting thing to think about the life of the object you're standing in front of in the museum. What's its history? Uh, how did it come to be here? This, I think, is, is a very interesting thing. Unfortunately, museums rarely help us imagine those lives. The object simply is here, and we don't know how and why. So, as far as religion is concerned, uh, as I say, we shouldn't be surprised to see it crop up in even a museum. And so I wasn't altogether shocked when two California yoga practitioners who went to class in a museum told me that they felt they were reconsecrating the icons as they did yoga in front of them. I was intrigued. Uh, it's certainly not an idea that I expected to hear necessarily, but uh, on reflection I realized that they had taken unto themselves the role comparable to the priest who consecrates an image or can deconsecrate it and regarded themselves as being in some way able to reconsecrate the image before them by doing yoga in front of it. Now, this is a very non-traditional approach to both yoga and to consecration of images. One doesn't do yoga to consecrate an image traditionally, but uh, I found it fascinating that they had come up with a new religious reason for going to the museum to do yoga. Professor Sullivan, thank you for being on the Religious Studies Project. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> thank you. That was excellent to hear from the two of you there, David, and excellent to hear Bruce again after what was a very interesting presentation here in Edinburgh back in October or November last year, and um, really touching on a lot of issues that are close to the RSP's um, heart, if the RSP can be said to have a heart. Um, on that sort of notion of uh, different spaces, and um, yeah, this is a really tenuous link here. Um, and, and, and popular culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, David um, is going to tell you a little bit now about a film festival that he's curating um, at the Sensam conference in Bedford. Um that's running in April 2017, and it's a really interesting opportunity that you've been asked to do this, and it's a good opportunity for the RSP as well. So what's happening with that? Indeed. So um, SENSAM, the Centre for the Study of Apocalyptic and Mil Millenarian Movements, is organising three conferences, um, two this year and one the beginning of next year, on various aspects of sort of apocalyptic and millennial thought. And for the first one, they've invited me down to curate um, a little film festival that's running on the two days before the conference. So on the 4th of April, and this is in uh, Bedford, and it's going to be in a big top at the Panacea Charitable Trust Garden. So it should be quite a, a, an interesting event. So starting at 5pm, we've got a double bill of uh, Darren Aronofsky's Noah and followed by uh, Left Behind, the remake with uh, Nicolas Cage. Um and that day is looking more at sort of Christian, um, sort of traditional approaches to millenarian thought um, in connection with violence. And then on the 5th, we have a double bill looking more at sort of uh, more contemporary New Age alternative approaches to millenarianism, um, starting with uh, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which I think is 72. It's a Peter Weir film. And 
that's going to be followed by 2012, the disaster film from, I think, 2008, 2009. Um, so, uh, there's going to be, I, I'm going to introduce them. Um, we're going to be having discussion afterwards. It should be a lot of fun. Um, so do come down if you can. If you can't make it for that, come down for the conference itself. I'm going to be there for the whole four days. I'm going to be recording interviews. Uh, Susan Palmer and Stuart Wright are going to be there, both experts on um, contemporary minority religions, apocalyptic movements, and um, their relationship with the government. They've just published a, mm. a very interesting book on that subject. So hopefully I'll be recording them um, talking about that, or at least a roundtable. But there's a an event set up on the Facebook page, uh, and if you're going to come, do let me know and we can uh, we can arrange to hang out. Yeah, that's the Religious Studies Project Facebook page. And uh, some of the names there, Susan Palmer has been on the RSP before, speaking with David. And I think also we had Jay Gordon Melton on talking about um, millenarianism. We have, yeah, that Um, was me again. It was quite early on in the RSP archive, so do check out those. And we're going to try and get a bit better at posting events um, to various conferences that we'll be attending um, so that you can keep track of our movements around the world and so that you know um, you can come and uh, say hello um, when we're there. You Uh, can also say hello um, on Twitter, um, on Google+, Plus, on Facebook, as we already mentioned. You can leave a comment on the website under the posts. We welcome when you do, and there's a lot of good discussion happened this year already. And you can um, leave us a rating on iTunes if you if you would. That would be great. Yeah. And don't forget to come back next week for another interview that Brian Fallon has recorded for us with um, Dr. Carolyn Blythe on religion, gender, and gender violence. So we look forward to that next week. Look forward to another interview from Brian. But for now, thanks for listening. listening. <laughs>